So who would have imagined that summer 2020, church would look like kids under a tent, three services, one at 8 a.m., which was difficult to get up for, uh, people in masks, spread out, no handshaking. But this is, where, this is where we are. And most of us could have never imagined, I don't think anyone could have imagined at the beginning of this year uh, what was in store. Many of us approach this new decade with wide eyes thinking, what could happen? What great things could happen? What changes could be made? What things could be made better during this new decade that we could maybe call the, the roaring 20s? And then March, things started shutting down. Our lives changed, and, and many of us had plans for 2020 and had calendars for 2020, uh, and we don't have those, those anymore. Um, there was a philosopher in the 20th century who, who, who gave a quote that he's, he's quite famous for. And he's not maybe the most sophisticated of the philosophers of the 20th century. His name is Mike Tyson. And Mike Tyson was preparing for a fight with Evander Holyfield. And if any of you all are familiar with the fight between Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield, you know that Evander Holyfield left with a little less of his ear than when he went into the fight. Mike Tyson was interviewed before the fight, and this is where he made this particularly uh, memorable quote as far as quotes from boxers go. When he was being interviewed about fighting Evander Holyfield, and they were asking him what they were going to do about how Evander Holyfield would make these lateral movements. They asked, are you going to try to dance with him, or are you going to stay back? Are you going to go in hard, or are you going to let him wear himself out? And they were asking him some very detailed questions about how he was going to approach this fight, and what his plans were with this fight, and here's how he responds, responded. He said, everyone's got a plan until they get hit. Then like a rat, they stop and freeze in fear. And then he made the famous quote that is attributed to him. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. And we could say that that quote from this 20th century philosopher, Mike Tyson, sums up the time between January 2020 and July 2020 pretty well. Everyone has a plan until a global pandemic occurs. But one thing that we can take heart in knowing is that God's plan for 2020 remains intact. Uh, while we were surprised by much of this, this did not take God by surprise. Uh, we're going to look at, at an account in the book of Luke chapter 8. You can be turning there as I'm talking. Luke chapter 8. We're going to be looking at an account of a man who had plans and God changed his plans and as we, as we look at this account, I want you to think about it in, the, in this context. What if God's plans for you in 2020 remain intact? And what if God's plans for you in 2020 mean you sharing your story to change someone else's story? And as we turn to Luke chapter 8, we, we, we find Jesus um, stepping on the shore of, of an area called the Gerasenes. And we'll start in verse 26. It says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, Jesus and his disciples, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him with a loud voice and said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with sh chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. 
Jesus then asked him, what is your name? He said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to, not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. They begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herds rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. This would be a good spot to make a few dad jokes. I don't know if I should or not, but you could say these pigs committed suicide. You could say that the people for dinner had deviled ham. Uh, but we're not going to make those, those jokes. We'll keep reading. Verse 34, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home. Declare how much God has done for you. Then he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Let's pray together. Father, as we prepare to, to think on and, and, and meditate on what we've just read from your word, God, I pray that, that our thinking and our meditation will allow us to, uh, to glorify your son, Jesus. That it will remind us just how strong and just how mighty and just how powerful he is. I pray that it will cause our eyes to, 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 to leave the surroundings that we are found in this cultural moment that will fix them on Jesus. I pray that you'll also direct our eyes toward people that don't have the hope, that don't have that strong Savior that we have, and that you'll put a burden on our heart that during these uncertain times to point people to the one thing that's certain, and it's your power over Satan and evil and death and hell. In Jesus' name, amen. So as Jesus is approaching this this, this, this area, um, he's coming off the heels of a very important event between him and his disciples. They have crossed the Sea of Galilee, and, and as they're crossing the Sea of Galilee, a great storm comes, and Jesus calms the storm. This is one of several uh, accounts that Luke makes prior to the passage that we just read that, that demonstrate Jesus' power. In the previous chapters, you can read about Jesus' power over the animal world through him providing his disciples a great catch of fish. You can read about Jesus' power over sickness uh, through his healing of people. You can read about Jesus' power even over death um, by raising the son of a, of a widow in the town of Nain. And you can also see in the previous verses Jesus' power over the weather. Luke was a doctor and, and, and he very interested in some of the some of the effects that Jesus, some of the authority that Jesus had on the natural realm, but Luke here shifts and, and gives us a story about Jesus' authority, not just on the natural realm, the things, that we can, the things that we can perceive with our eyes and ears, but over the spiritual realm. This region that Jesus landed in was, was opposite of Jesus' hometown, home area of Galilee. Um, it, was, it was a 10-city region called the Decapolis. And in that 10-city region, there was a, one of the smaller cities um, was the city of, of Gerasa. The Gerasenes lived there. And that's where we see he was, he was approaching. He was on the outskirts of that city about six miles out on the shore. And there met him 
a demon-possessed man. We can learn from parallel accounts in Matthew 8, in Mark chapter 5, that there were two demon-possessed men. But Luke focuses in on this one demon-possessed man who was particularly afflicted by a demon. And here's what we, the first observation that we can make here as we consider the life of this demon-possessed man is we see the destructive power of the enemy. We see the destructive power of the enemy. First John chapter 5 verse 19 tells us that the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. That this world as a system is under the control and the manipulation of our enemy. And I don't think it takes, takes very much to, to, to see that these days. Get on Facebook for a few minutes. Watch Fox News, CNBC, MSNBC, whatever news station is, is, is your preference. We realize that we live in a world that is under the sway of the evil one. This man was particularly afflicted by the enemy. We can go verse by verse and we can just examine the state of this man that was demon-possessed. First it says, for a long time he had worn no clothes. Uh, that, that brings two connotations with it. First, that, that, was a dangerous, that was a dangerous way to live back in, in that particular area with the hot sun and with the cold nights. Um, it t- likely took a toll on his body. Secondly, there's the shame that comes with, with nakedness. In, in West Virginia, there's two kinds of naked, right? There's naked and there's naked. And if you're naked, you're in trouble, right? You guys have your masks on, so I never, I'm not going to know if I've gone too far. So just, you know, one of you just needs to raise your hands if, if things are getting a little too awkward or if I, I've crossed over a line. But the, the shame connected with what this man was experiencing. We keep reading, it says he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. This man was, was living more at home, living with the dead than with the living. He didn't live in the town where living people, he lived in the caves and in the places where people were often, were often buried. As we keep reading, we learn that many a time, uh, many a time in verse 29, it had seized him. It had, it had taken control of him. And, and we, we, we learn later that for a long time he had been afflicted by this demon. So this was not just something that had recently happened. This was a lifelong affliction. This was a lifelong torment that these demons had terrorized this man with. We keep reading and we learn that in, in, in verse 29 that the townspeople, um, and as a little side note, these townspeople were part of this 10-city region that were known for their sophistication. They were the purveyors of, of Hellenism, of, of Greek thought and Greek culture into the, in, into the area of Palestine. And they were known for their you know, sophistication. And, and, and these people who seemed to have the answers for everything, they tried to, to shackle and bind this man who had the demon and what we learn is eventually there was an escalatory pattern to where this man, we, we can learn in Matthew 8, Mark chapter 5, eventually this man would, would be overcome by the demons and he would break those chains and break those shackles. And then it said he would be driven out into the desert, a place of isolation, a place of loneliness, a place of desolation. We learn here that he was quantitatively afflicted by demons, maybe more than anyone else had, because when Jesus asks in verse 30, Jesus didn't need to ask. He did that for the, um, you know, for his, uh, for, the, for the disciples and for the people who were watching so they could understand what was going on here. He, in verse 30, asked, what is your name? And they res- the, the demon inside him, the man responded, legion for many demons entered him. Legions were Roman detachment of troops that could number anywhere between 1,000 and 10,000 uh, troops. Most, most of the time they would fall between the four to 6,000 range. So we could surmise that between four and 6,000 demons were inside this man, tormenting him, afflicting him. 
Some parallel passages, Matthew chapter 8, Mark chapter 5, we learned that this man in Mark chapter 5, he would, the, these demons were causing him to cry out with a loud voice to wail and, and, and to cut himself, a self-destructive pattern of behavior. Matthew chapter 8 reads that this man was so fierce that no one would pass that way. He was not only a danger, he was not only a harm to himself, he was a harm to those around him. People would not go to that area that Jesus had just stepped foot on. This man and this town were tormented by their enemy, and no amount of sophistication, no amount of thought, they had no solutions. You know, we're still oppressed by the enemy today. The enemy is still, unfortunately, alive and well. We read in Ephesians chapter 6 that, that, that we don't fight against flesh and blood. Um, but there are principalities and powers. There are forces of evil in high places. That even though Jesus won the war on the cross, that the battle still rages every day. So we've seen the destructive power of the enemy. And I believe in our culture, in our, this moment, um, in 2020, we have seen some of the destructive power of the enemy, not just with the pandemic, but, but through his, his using this pandemic to pit Christian against Christian, to discourage people, to, to, to try to hamper the, the, the cause of the, church, of, the, of the church, the mission of the church, and taking the gospel around the world. But here's the good news. The next thing that we observe here is the delivering power of Jesus. Notice the mere presence of Jesus confronted the enemy. Verse 27, when Jesus stepped out on land, there met him a man who had many demons. In Mark chapter 5, verse 2, it says that immediately, the moment Jesus took that step onto the, onto the shoreline, this demon was, 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 was awoken. This demon had no choice but to reveal himself. And it's interesting to look throughout the whole course of the Bible how in the Old Testament there was little to no outward manifested demonic activity. When, when, when Jesus went back to heaven and after the times of the apostles to whom Jesus had de designated the authority to drive out demons, as they passed, there's little to no outward demonic activity and casting out of demons. But during this time, when Jesus walked on earth, God in, in human form, God in Abad, we find this escalation of, of, of outward demonic activity because the presence of Jesus, they, they, they could not continue to go clandestine. They could not continue to go under cover anymore because of the light of Jesus immediately immediately so they were the, the presence of Jesus confronted the enemy the sight of Jesus captured the enemy they had to capitulate to Jesus's authority keep reading it says when he saw Jesus the, this man with the demons when he saw Jesus did he pull out a sword to go to battle with Jesus did he uh, did, did, did he walk up to Jesus and have a debate back and forth um, no. It says, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him. Look at the power of Jesus. And look, why, why did he cry out and fall down before him? He said, Jesus, son of the most high God, what do you have to do with me? Isn't it interesting that some of these demons, demons have impeccable theology. You could maybe argue that de demons have a, Christ, have a Christology that's higher than, than many Christians do today. Jesus, Son of Most High God, they knew, who he were. they knew who Jesus was. The disciples didn't know who Jesus was. If you look at the, the previous passage, the disciples asked the question, who is this that the, commands the winds and the water that they obey him? The disciples didn't yet know who Jesus was, but the demons knew exactly who he was. That's why they got on their knees and they bowed before him and, and, and they cried out to him in submission to him. 
Three times they say, I beg you. Um, verse, verse 28, I beg you, do not torment me. Verse 31, they begged him not to command them to, send, to depart into the abyss. Verse, uh, thir- verse uh, 32, they begged, him not to let, they begged him to let them enter the pigs. You see, nothing, nothing at this point was happening outside of Jesus' command. There was only one person in control at this point. The moment Jesus stepped onto that shore, one person was in control. It wasn't the demons. It wasn't the man who was possessed by the demons. It wasn't the townspeople. It wasn't the disciples. It was Jesus. And the mere words of Jesus conquered the enemy. Notice the discussion all between Jesus and the demons. It all revolves around what Jesus would say. Because with the power of his word, they have no choice but to obey. Verse 32 says, He gave them permission. Then, verse 33, the demons came out of the man, entered the pigs, the herds rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. What the townspeople, these sophisticated townspeople couldn't do through shackles, through chains, through the best that they had, Jesus did with a word. That's the delivering power of Jesus. We have to remember, no matter how sophisticated our society is, no matter all, how many of the answers we think we have figured out as a society, there's one thing that our society, in all its sophistication, has not been able to solve, and it's the problem of sin. It's the problem of the enemy. It's the problem of the, the spiritual battle that we go into every day of our lives. But Jesus has the power. The next thing that we, the final thing, I should say, that we see is the demonstrative power of a changed life. We talked about the demons who were tormenting that man. We talked about how Jesus terrorized the demons. He terrorized the terrorists. He tormented the tormentors. What was the result on this man's life? Look at verse 34. It says, the herdsmen saw what happened. (laughs) They fled and told it in the city and the country because they didn't have anything else to do because there were no pigs to watch. Then the people went out to see what happened and they came to Jesus and they found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus. The last time they saw him, was he sitting? He was breaking chains. He was running in the desert. He was cutting himself. He was hurting others. They see him sitting. I'd I'd venture to say first time they had ever seen this man sitting. They saw him sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed. Not to be crude here, but this was probably the first time they had seen this man with clothes on. That was a shock. They took note of that. And then they said, in his right mind, This man was probably putting together coherent sentences. His eyes weren't going every every direction. They were focused on Jesus. He was in his right mind. It says they were afraid. And those who had seen it uh, told them, told the the surrounding people, how the demon-possessed man had been healed. There's good reason to believe that this man was not just healed from a demon, but he, he was saved and delivered from sin too. This word that we, we get for this man had been healed is the Greek word sozo. Uh, we find that throughout the Bible usually connected to salvation and being saved. When the Philippian jailer asked Paul, and, what must I do to be saved? Sozo. When Paul was sharing the gospel and he said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved? Sozo. We find here 
the demon-possessed man had been healed, and we see the outward workings of someone who, who, whose life had been changed by Jesus. He's sitting at Jesus' feet. The, town, the, 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 the sheep herder, or the, uh, the pig herders had to take a, a six-mile trek into town to get the people of the city, six-mile trek back, probably on foot. So this man had spent a long period of time sitting at the feet of Jesus, taking in all his teaching, soaking in all his words. Dr. Thomas Constable, a former professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, said this. Luke's use of the Greek word sozo suggests that this man became both a believer and a disciple of Jesus. The people of the town, they took note, but what was their reaction to the power of Jesus? They say, hey, come on in. Come into town. We, 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 have, we, we want to hear more of, of what you have to say. We want to hear more of your teaching. It says they were afraid. Verse 37, they were seized with fear. Why is it? Some have said that it's, it was an economic reason, uh, that Jesus was bad for the pig business, and <laughs> no doubt he was. Uh, but there, there's no, there doesn't seem to be much here in the text that indicates it was an economic concern. What we can put together through, through study of this, of this town and the surrounding towns was that they had a level of sophistication that made them look down on Jewish people. They considered them to be backwoods, backwater Redneck, I guess you could say, people. And ima- imagine their shock when the, th- the, the problem they couldn't find a solution to was solved by this itinerant Jewish rabbi who confronted all of their assumptions. They didn't want to have anything to do with that in their town, so they sent him away. This man, rightly so, says, Hey, Jesus, can I go with you on the boat? Says the man from whom the demons had gone out begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away. If I was that man, I think I'd want to be on the boat too. I don't think I'd want to go back to the town where I was known as the demon-possessed man, where I was known as the guy who didn't wear clothes, where I was known as the guy who cut himself, where I was known as the guy who was a danger to others. You think he could ever get a referral to rent an apartment in that town? I don't think so. You think anybody would hire him? No. He, he said, there's no life for me back here. And, and, and you've changed my life, and I've been sitting at your feet, and I want to learn more about you, and I want to go with you. And what did Jesus say? No. He says, Jesus sent him away, saying, return to your home. And declare how much God has done for you. This man's plans changed. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. But Jesus had a better plan for this man. Jesus saved this man to send this man. And for some of us, we had some big plans for this year. Had some big plans for this decade. And all those plans are gone. But I believe these words that Jesus gave to this man ring true in our hearts and would make good application for our lives during this time. Look at the two imperatives that Jesus said. He said, return home and declare how much God has done for you. So I want to ask you a few what-if questions. What if God saved you to send you? What if God saved you to send you? What was the difference between the demons who believed and this man who went? The demons believe, they shudder. We know that from the Bible. They refuse to worship God. This man worshiped God through his obedience and through his service. He worshiped God. You know, some of us would be perfectly content sitting like this man was, reading our Bibles every day, which we should be doing, but never working it out in our lives. You know, I'm glad that we're back to church. 
I'm glad that yeah, for, for the time being, we're able to meet together and do some of the functions of the church that we missed over the past three weeks. But just as important as it is to get back on church, it's important to get back on mission. There are people that don't know the hope that we have. And I believe that God saved us to send us. The, the next question is, what if your story is more powerful than you think? Now, this man had a powerful story. He went from being the, uh, the demon-possessed, naked, uh, schizophrenic man who, who couldn't put together a coherent sentence to sitting at the feet of Jesus, um, the picture of, uh, of health, and he had this amazing story, and of Jesus set him loose with it. So go tell everyone what God has done. I feel like my story is not as amazing as this man's because I was saved when I was five years old. Uh, I wasn't saved out of a life of um, outwardly marked sin. I hit the juice boxes pretty hard, but that was about it. Some of you maybe are like that. With You're, you're like me. You feel like, I don't have a story. Uh, my story's not that interesting. I was five. I was at Sunday school. I was at VBS, and somebody showed me how I could be saved, and I said, yes, I want to be saved. My story's not quite that interesting. Do you know your story is very interesting? Your story is very powerful. Can I read you a little Cliff Notes version of your story? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and, and mind, and were by nature children of wrath. You see that? We see all three parts of the enemy. We see, we see Satan, we see the world, we see the flesh. We were just as afflicted eternally by the enemy as this man was. Our fate was the same. So we are all by nature children, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy with a great love that he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Tell me you don't have a powerful story. You have a powerful story. God has worked in your life in a supernatural, just as supernatural as this demon being cast out. He worked in your life. He put the Holy Spirit in your heart. Your life was regenerated. You have new life. You've got an incredible story, and people need to hear it because it points to the hero of the story, who's Jesus. What if there's some people who can be reached by your story? Here's the rub. We are living in the pandemic, um, we're not supposed to get together except for church. We're glad we have that exemption in groups of 25 or, or more. Um, there are places we can't go, and, and when we go places, we're talking like this, and, and it's hard to understand, and it's hard to see lip movement, and it, it's harder than, it seems harder than ever to share the gospel, but what if some of those constraints God is using so that he'll focus us where our influence and our story influence is the greatest? Dr. Seuss. Anybody like to read Dr. Seuss? What adults in here will admit, you still like Dr. Seuss. Who here is sitting next to someone who has the maturity level of a kid and they need to read Dr. Seuss? Okay, um, Dr. Seuss on a bet wrote a book with 50 words or less. He was bet $100 by his publisher that he couldn't write a book with 50 words or less. So he wrote that book, he turned it into his publisher. It was the most famous and widely circulated of all the books he wrote and it was the book called Green Eggs and ham, written with 50 words or less. And it was said that after that, Dr. Seuss always gave himself a word limit because he learned that with the constriction of the word limit came great clarity and great focus. Could it be that through, this, through the constrictions that we have right now, just like Jesus said, go home, we give great clarity and focus to who we share our story with. Maybe some of us, like, we just need to go home. 
Some of you are at home right now and you're watching live stream, so you've got that one checked off. Go home. When's the last time your kids heard of how God worked in your life, that supernatural story that we just read about in Ephesians 2? What about your parents, your grandparents, your grandkids? What about the people that you work with, that you're stuck with? <laughs> what about the people that, that, that you see every day on a continual basis? Our circles have shrunk temporarily maybe because of this pandemic, but we've never been able to be more laser focused with the people that we can share our story with than now, and people can be reached by our story. I think this man is running from his story because of the shame associated with it. And some of us, we run from our high school friends. We run from our college buddies because they got the dirt on us. They know who we were before God got a hold of our life. But what more powerful story than those who know you best and can see the change that God has brought about in your life? What if God refuels your life by sharing your story? What if sharing your story refuels your relationship with God? I used to think that evangelism was the capstone class of Christian university. You know what I mean by that? When I was in my undergraduate studies, I had to write a paper, and it was my capstone paper, and it was, the class was number 499. You don't start out with a 499 class in college. You start out with a 101. And when I was in my last semester of college, I had a 499 class, and it was my capstone class. I had to write a 60-page paper on the comparative analysis between Edmund Burke's res, uh, um, Reflections on the Revolution in France and George Washington's Farewell Address, and I had to compare and contrast to 60 pages. You don't just start that as a freshman, right? 101 class, an easy class, the first thing that you need to know, first thing you need to do. Could it be that evangelism, that sharing the gospel, isn't the capstone of discipleship? Evangelism is the 101. This man was armed with what little he got to absorb from Jesus during that time he was sitting at his feet and his story. And he went and evangelized, shared the gospel, shared the news about Jesus with that whole 10-city region of the Decapolis. Maybe the reason that we're spiritually stagnant is because we intake this, but we never work it out in our lives. What if God, his plan for this time in our lives is to use your story to change someone else's story? I'll close with this. One of the wake-up calls for me was about a year and a half ago. There's a man that I see on a kind of frequent basis, and he usually wears a hot pink shirt, and he's in his 80s. I think he's 85. So anytime an 85-year-old man wears a hot pink shirt, that's admirable. And uh, I would always comment on his shirt because he wore it quite frequently. And, and, one, and one time he mentioned that his wife bought him that shirt. And he said recently, he said about a year ago, my wife passed away. He said, so I, I wear this shirt just to remember how silly she was and the jokes that we would have about this shirt. And, uh, and yeah, I, I told him I was, so, I was so sorry to hear that his, his wife had passed away. And uh, I, I mentioned, I said, I said, the promise of heaven is, is so great. And, and we, we got to talk a little bit about the gospel. And, and he, said, he said, I know my wife is in heaven. He said, she was a good person. He said, she went to church. She was always telling me about Jesus. She would drag me to church. He said, I'd go to church two or three times a month probably with her. He said, but she was a good lady, and I wasn't. I was not a good man, he said. So I'm glad that she gets to go to heaven, but I'm, yeah, there's no hope for me. And that was a great opportunity to share, that it was not a, to share with this man. It's not about what you've done. It's about what Jesus did for you, and I was able to share the gospel with him. Um, he wasn't ready to make that decision. He wasn't ready to make that, that faith commitment to Christ, but he said something that stuck with me. And I'll never forget. He said, I'm, thank you for telling me this. He said, I went to church with my wife for probably 50 years on and off. And everybody at that church thought 
that I was a Christian and nobody at that church shared the news of Jesus with me. It was like a stake in my heart. You realize the people that we see every day, the people that we see week to week, the people that are in that little circle, our circle has shrunk because of this virus for now, those are the people that we can reach and that our story can have this, uh, an amazing impact on. Jesus said, return to your home and declare what God has done for you. So I want to leave you with these, with, with these imperatives. Return to your home. The people that you rub shoulders with, the people that you know, to, know the best, tell them what God has done for you. If you're watching by live stream, maybe you just start right now in the comments and tell the people who are watching what God has done for you. Maybe you hit the share button and share with your Facebook uh, friends what God has done for you. Those of us who are here this morning, why don't we make it a commitment to share our story with one person today, with one person tomorrow, one person on Tuesday, and keep sharing our story every day until it becomes a lifestyle because our story isn't about us. It's about God who in his great mercy, he saved us.